You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, your son's uh, incarnation uh, birth as a human boy is always relevant to us, even uh, this week after Christmas, Lord. Help us to understand the eternal uh, ramifications of your your word becoming flesh um, and how we might uh, communicate that message to others. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, thanks for coming. Um, I... Uh, I uh, I forgot what I call this class, Doing Apologetics and Evangelism on the Birth of Christ. It's kind of, as I was preparing my notes, I mean, I came up with that title like a month ago because I had to give Gil something. And as I prepared my notes, I felt like there's there were two big topics for me that were, that were uh, crashing together. So um, I think I have too much to say, and that's not always good. But the thing about that is, is I think that I want to do some future teaching around the idea of apologetics and evangelism as a as a larger topic. And uh, I just brought in uh, the idea of the birth of Jesus Christ as a, as a category of thought that people struggle with, and I think is actually super relevant um, to apologetics and evangelism. Um, and uh, and I can't talk about both in one lesson, so I'm really going to focus on on the incarnation itself. But I want to just say a few words about what am I talking about in terms of apologetics and evangelism. You've probably heard of evangelism before, all of you. Maybe you've heard the word apologetics and have a lot of different things, even with evangelism, have a lot of different things to come that come to mind. They're two different but very related things. And I would say that apologetics is a part of the larger project of evangelism. Are you tracking with me? Not always, but it can be. Um, <clears throat> and apologetics means uh, to give a, a defense of the faith. Apologia is the word, which doesn't mean apology. It's actually the opposite. So that's confusing. It means I'm not, you know, I'm not apolog- I'm sorry that I'm a Christian. No, it doesn't mean that at all. <laughs> it's actually the opposite. I'm not sorry. Let me tell you why. Um, it means to 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 give a, a defense for the faith. And the the key Bible verse around that is uh, from First Peter uh, chapter three verse fifteen, to always be prepared to give a. a, a um, an account for the hope that's within you. Uh, so that's the thing that we often point to, that this is a biblical concept to, to be prepared to uh, give a thoughtful account to those who want to hear it. And you see this happening uh, in, in Acts, for example, um, uh, the different speeches that Paul gives. Um, think of Mars Hill, for example. There are different ways to go about apologetics. Some people kind of have an allergy to apologetics because it's focused more on the head than the heart, if you know what I'm saying about that. Um, and I think that that can be true, and probably people don't come to faith per se because they've heard an apologetic talk. Um, the Holy Spirit has to convert their hearts, although I would say that apologetics is a, is a, a part of the task of evangelism that can kind of prime the pump for that heart conversion. As someone who converted to faith, uh, in my 20s, I read a ton of apologetic material, and it didn't necessarily do it for me, but I think it laid a lot of groundwork so that 
by the time I finally came to faith, I had my re- the reservations that I had were answered. And that's the thing about Christianity. Uh, don't, when people ask you why you're a Christian, just give a simple answer about, like, I know it's true because I feel it in my heart. That's a disservice to Christianity, which is a faith that has, uh, is, is founded on facts based on historic claims of things that happened in history. So uh, you, when you say, I know it's true because I feel it in my heart, you're basically participating in the sort of the vague, <clears throat> um, the, uh, the, the, the soup that we have in the 21st century of all the different mysticisms that you can sort of believe in. You're turning Christianity in just another uh, form of sort of spirituality that's like anything else. You know, it's, you know well, that's true for you. This is true for me. Because I feel it. Well, I mean, for somebody like me who was a real skeptic, that just didn't cut it because it sounded like um, sounded like everything else. And and by the way, Christianity makes claims about things that happened in history, um, namely Jesus Christ. And that's the place to start. Jesus Christ is a place to start with the task of evangelism and, and apologetics because it's it's more difficult to tackle things in the Old Testament. For example. Noah's flood, right? Or did Jonah really get swallowed by the Leviathan and sit in his belly for three days? Like, that's just too difficult to work with. But Jesus Christ believed in those things. And so you go to him, okay? You go to him, and there are some real uh, things that people struggle with. And one of them is the fact that God became a man. Um, But I would say that the bigger topic, the thing that I really want to talk about eventually as an apologetic... um, is the resurrection. The resurrection is the real place to go because I don't I don't recommend it as a film, but I just watched Lee Strobel's, uh, you know who Lee Strobel is? He wrote this book called The Case for Christ. He was a journalist. It's kind of a USA Today version of apologetics, his book. It's good. Um, and then this movie came out based on his, his life. It's a terrible movie because it's just bad storytelling. There's no, I mean, it's just, it's, it's not it's not made for film, his story, right? But there's this one scene where he's talking to a fellow journalist when he's still a skeptic who's a Christian, and he, and he tells him, if you want to know whether Christianity is true or not, go to the re- go for the jugular. And he says, what's the jugular? He says, the resurrection. If you can prove or disprove the resurrection, that's where you go. And then all the sort of chips fall into place. But because we had Christmas last week, um, I thought that maybe it'd be good to talk about the incarnation uh, because there's historicity related to that. And I also think as a topic, the idea of the incarnation, which means uh, the word of God becoming flesh, is, um, is uh, it's so s- striking as to be helpful for apologetics and evangelism. Uh, because again, it's not just mere platonic, floaty thoughts. We're talking about flesh and earth and material. Um, and s- for some people, that really uh, relates when you do have a real robust understanding of who Jesus Christ was as the Word made flesh. And so that's this um, really long handout that I handed out. If you have that or a neighbor has it to look uh, alongside with them, and I'll try to go for another 20, 25 minutes going through this, and then we'll just sort of open it up for discussion. Um, and uh, and uh, we can kind of go anywhere, and I might not be able to answer your questions, um, uh, uh, but I'll try to, okay? So the uh, incarnation of Jesus Christ, I, I wrote here at the top this sort of 
verse, which is uh, one that you know you can kind of commit to memory around this topic. John chapter one uh, is uh, you know one of the, the sort of the, the top sort of texts to understand this idea. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word of God, uh, one of the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, became flesh, fully divine 100%, fully human 100%. And uh, the word we use to describe this, as I said, is incarnation, which if you wanted to give sort of an English translation would be like enfleshment, that the the word of God was enfleshed, uh, uh, becoming, and not just like as a casing over the word of God, okay? That's not, it's not like, don't imagine, like if you think of like a, a, an egg with a yolk, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something entirely different here, that the word of God became flesh, became a man 100%, uh, not as a kid, like an actual guy who was also God. (laughs) Uh, And so here I wrote uh, some thoughts. The incarnation is a a central doctrine of the church, and uh, uh, it's the doctrine of Christ's humanity. It makes Christianity unique, as I said before. And this is why it's helpful around apologetics Christianity is unique among all other world religions that the word of God took on human flesh, becoming a man, beginning with conception in the womb of a virgin, a young Jewish girl named Mary. He was born as a baby boy, grew up through the stages of development, became a man, lived a real life, had a teaching and healing ministry in the final years of his life, died an actual human death by execution, was raised bodily, not just spiritually, but raised bodily from the dead at his resurrection, and ascended bodily into heaven, where as both fully divine and fully human, he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. So in other words, the infinite became finite in the incarnation, giving uh, his work on the cross. So this is why the, 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 the incarnation is important for Jesus Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, that he wasn't just a ghost, right? That he was also a fully man. Uh, the, the infinite became infinite in the car- incarnation, giving his work on the cross and at the resurrection universal and eternal ramifications. God himself was in time and space for us, which is why he's referred to as Emmanuel, God with us, in Isaiah and, and Matthew when uh, explaining it. Um, it's, uh, it sounds simple, but it's kind of mind-boggling. Uh, and uh, as I said, the incarnation is an aspect of uh, Christ's life and his person and work and therefore uh, has a lot to do with his cross resurrection and ascension um, that he didn't come just uh, at the week of the passion you know he from conception as a zygote in the uterus of a woman who happened to be named Mary a young Jewish girl at a particular time and place and then grew up until about 30, early 30s, and then he died. Um, and so uh, that's the thing. Is that, that he, Here's another important part of it for the, the idea of apologetics is the historicity of it, that it's historical. I was just watching, uh, I watch Friday nights with my uh, girls. Uh, we do uh, movie night. Uh, we do pizza every Friday and a movie, and I try to find movies that are okay to watch with kids. So, and ones that I'm going to enjoy too. So we go through kind of a lot of the Disney ones and we just watched Aladdin uh, and I was thinking about it and you know, it's like, when, when did this happen? 
who knows? I mean, there's just no, there's no timeline on most of those fairy tales, right? It's sort of like Snow White, um, Cinderella. When did this happen in history? They never, they kind of give you a vague idea, perhaps, but it doesn't really matter. It sort of, it could have happened any time. That's a fairy tale, right? This isn't a fairy tale because <laughs> we're saying that a particular place and time, Jesus Christ was incarnate. Um, and uh, so that he was born in a particular place, Bethlehem of Judea, at a particular time during the reigns of Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, uh, and Herod the Great, to a particular young woman, Mary the betrothed of Joseph. And you see this at the beginning of some of the Gospels. For example, Luke has a lot of this. So here's from Luke chapter 1. In those days, a, cre- a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. I mean, you could look this guy up. There's a Wikipedia article about him, right? There are books <laughs> that reference him outside of the Bible, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And uh, all went to be registered, each of his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of uh, uh, David, which is called Bethlehem, because uh, he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came uh, for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Or consider, for example, Matthew chapter 2, just this long, uh, that should say chapter 2 verse 1. I don't know why I put 21. Sorry, that's a typo. Now, after uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So not uh, even though like when I was watching Aladdin, you get the sense that this vaguely exists in the Middle East, right? Uh, Here we're saying a particular uh, place, not just Judea, but Bethlehem, which was a, a very small um, sub- suburb of Jerusalem with like a thousand people, you know, backwater suburb of Jerusalem during this sort of four to six year period of overlap with these three guys, okay? Um, which is how we, by the way, uh, kind of have created our Western calendar based on that event. <clears throat> Although he probably wasn't necessarily born at 1 AD, uh, it was probably off by a couple few years. But pretty accurate, you know, as far as um, kind of ancient history goes. Uh, and so there are other key passages. Those are on the next page related. So that was the historicity of it. And I mean, there are other things I can say about it, but those are just some examples. Um, I guess what I'm saying is to a, to a certain extent, this stuff is provable. You could wrestle with the history of it, and plenty of people have. Whereas other spiritualities, if you explore them, that doesn't really matter. You know, like, when did this happen? You know, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. In other religions that do have historicity, from an apologetic standpoint, don't usually hold as much water as Christianity. For example, Islam, uh, Mormonism, uh, the other one would be Judaism, uh, which we have their history as well. But uh, the apologetic case for Islam is, is not as good, and the apologetic case for Mormonism isn't also. Uh, but with this stuff, you can wrestle with the history, and plenty of people have. I'm not an expert on this stuff, so I've, got, I've given you a list of um, a bibliography of other apologetic uh, material that you can, you can read at home. 
And that's the great thing about apologetics. Even if you feel like you're not good at it, the, 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 the most powerful thing you can do, the strongest thing that you can do, rather than making a fool of yourself trying to wrestle with the historicity of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and say, well, I know a good book. And I would, would you consider reading it? This person's a better expert at it than me. That's what some people did in my life. And it was super helpful, including my wife, uh, who gave me a few things to read before we were married. Um, so here, but then, so that's all the history. And then about the incarnation. Uh, there are some uh, key passages. I mentioned uh, John chapter 1 and some others that get at the concept of just what was happening here. I mean, let's just read this uh, excerpt from John 1 again, which you've heard so many times. And just imagine the sort of, I mean, how unimaginable this really is. How mind-boggling what is being said here is. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is prehistory, okay? In the beginning, way back in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God. He, uh, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made uh, that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives uh, light to everyone, has, uh, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt. And that uh, the word that's used there is basically saying like tabernacle, like the tabernacle in the wilderness, uh, uh, the tent uh, that Israel had where God dwelt. The, f- uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled as a human among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And there's some other places that kind of get at this concept. Paul does in Colossians. And Philippians, uh, that's these uh, two passages um, uh, below here. I won't read all of them, but these lines that maybe you're familiar with, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Um, we're talking about, um, just as in Genesis chapter 1, when God speaks the universe into creation using his word, that spoken word that created uh, all the universe in the world, and the creatures and plants and humans of the world, that, that word was what became flesh and tabernacled among us. And then in Philippians... Hey, so a word part two. Yeah. Like when you go back to John 1, I always heard that was the Greek word logos. Yeah, logos, yeah. Or logos, which yeah. means the meaning behind everything. Yeah, there's so, there's so much that can be said about that Greek word. You could A lot of ink has been spilt around the Greek word used in... John chapter 1 is what Ellis is talking about, the, the, um, the logos, which isn't just a word. You could say it's, uh, as you said, meaning and uh, wisdom and uh, uh, more than just a, a word of vocabulary. Uh, it has uh, tons of philosophical meaning uh, and theological meaning. 
Uh, and then Philippians. Just hear this from Philippians, a little bit shorter. Have this in mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even even death on the cross. And you, and you see here Paul connecting the incarnation with the crucifixion, uh, and uh, the the emptying himself of uh, of uh, of being uh, in heaven and and being and, and coming down in all humility uh, to to become a man. And then in Colossians, more to say about that. But listen on the the next page here. Uh, this is 1 John, not John 1, but 1 John 1, the epistle of the three epistles of John, the first chapter. The very, the, he gives it another prologue again in the first paragraph of his epistle, just like he did in the first half of the first, uh, the first uh, uh, chapter of his uh, gospel, where again he's talking about the incarnation and how important uh, this is uh, to what he's about to say in his letter. This is a, a man who was uh, one of the disciples of Jesus Christ who was walking around with him, right? And that's what he's talking about here. When he says that, that is the word of God. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus Christ when he says that. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you uh, too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that, your, so that our joy may be complete. <clears throat> and then again at the beginning of Hebrews and elsewhere. But here, these are just uh, some, uh, some sort of um, uh, key places to go to to wrestle with theologically just what was happening. Beyond the typical kind of birth narrative passages that we usually think of when we read like from Luke and, and Matthew, um, that uh, it doesn't end there. These are these are Christmas passages too, okay? Um, <clears throat> and uh, and then of course that uh, this wasn't this wasn't a new concept. Um, that, that this was uh, hinted at in the Old Testament and, and prophecy. And here are just two places that Ma- uh, well uh, two of the three here that Matthew does a really good job at the beginning of his gospel pointing out where prophecy, he's very explicit about where prophecy was fulfilled with Jesus and John the Baptist. Uh, and uh, the first one here from Isaiah, and he, and he said, Here uh, then, O house of David, is it too little for you to worry men that you worry my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning uh, God... Uh, who is with us, all that we've just read about in those previous passages. And then again in Isaiah, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, and I, I reference there that the, 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 the Great Commission almost explains this when Jesus says before ascending into heaven, because all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore. All the authority of being the uh, having the government upon his shoulder, 
being the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then finally, uh, Micah, um, where um, we get the, uh, the precise location of his birth. And actually, this verse was used by Herod and the uh, chief priests and scribes to determine uh, where uh, the star uh, actually was over so that the Magi might go and Herod sort of tries to trick the Magi to go do his bidding to find the child. Uh, and it's through this verse. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, <clears throat> who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Um, <clears throat> okay, so that uh, that's all the scripture stuff. There's some more uh, scripture that you can look to about the humanity of Jesus Christ, that he had emotions uh, uh, as a man, including anger, compassion, joy. There are accounts where he gets real short with his mother, uh, once as a boy and then later in adulthood at a wedding. Uh, the fact that he loved and marveled, he had sorrow and wept. Or think about uh, the, the descriptions of his physical body. Again, that this wasn't just some spiritual ghost who appeared to be a man, but he had blood, flesh, and bones. He hungered and thirsted. Uh, and then uh, there are the genealogies at the beginning of Matthew and Luke, again pointing to the humanity of Christ, tracing lineage back in the family. And then you can just, based on all of this information, based on the geography and ethnicity, just imagine that probably he was a boy with uh, thick and dark uh, hair. He probably had dark brown eyes and probably had a sort of medium skin complexion, like most people in the Middle East. Uh, I mean, it's that precise that we could even point to that. I mean, it might be slightly wrong here. I mean, there are some people in the Middle East who don't necessarily fit this description, but for the most part, that's true, isn't it? Um, and then finally, uh, just some uh, early church stuff about for understanding the incarnation. It's so central to uh, the, the church that it appears in our creeds, in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and then the St. Athanasius Creed. Do you even know what that is? Um, thank God that we don't recite this in church. Re- go <laughs> dust it off at the back of your prayer book, and it is a mouthful. But the incarnation was super important uh, in um, in that creed as well. And then there were even at the, it, it was, there was controversy in the early church over this idea of the incarnation that some of the sort of classic heresies, which were um, beliefs in the church that were um, um, declared to be wrong uh, through um, some wrestling with scripture at church councils where people from, uh, around the church came together and gathered and uh, discerned uh, what was true and what wasn't. Uh, one of them was the classic one is Arianism, Eutychianism, Gnosticism, Nestorianism. I give you uh, more information about that if that is something that interests you. And then finally, it's in our own uh, 39 articles of religion as the sacred article of the 39. And it reads this, of the word or son of God, which was made very man, the Son, which is the Word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God, and of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, of her substance, so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say the Godhead and the manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided, 
whereof is one Christ, very God and very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead and buried, to reconcile his Father to us, and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, but also for actual sins of men. So, um, <clears throat> and by the way, the classic kind of uh, um, early church book to read on this is On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius himself. And pick up, if you can, if you're interested in this, is actually an easy book to read for an early church book. Pick up a copy by St. Vladimir's Press because there's a preface there by C.S. Lewis called uh, On Reading Old Books. And that preface itself, which is only several pages, is worth reading. Uh, and, and he gives a case on, uh, on why we ought to read more old books, like uh, On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius. Uh, and, it's, and it's actually a, a quite an easy read. Um, so uh, we've got plenty of time uh, to discuss, I think. But uh, um, I, ha- I haven't done a, um, a lot with the concept of apologetics, because again, I, I felt like that was going to be a train wreck. Um, but more with the incarnation as um, a, a, something that can be a helpful aspect of apologetics and evangelism, especially for just your understanding and reassurance and confidence um, when someone holds you to task, that we, we're on uh, some, some good footing here. Um, and uh, there's so much more we can say about it, sort of skim the surface. But just, first of all, the historicity of it, um, and that it's, it's, uh, it's different than other religions uh, in terms of uh, what's going on here exactly with God becoming man. Um, uh, in most other world religions, uh, the, it's more of a, a spiritual understanding that's out, outside of uh, what we see materially. As a matter of fact, most people are trying to res- escape materiality Whereas Christianity says, no, uh, we were made to be material, so much so that God even entered materiality to redeem humanity and creation, um, and that our eternal lives are material, so much so that the first fruits of our resurrection, Jesus Christ, rose in a material body, and that this happened in time and space, and the particularity of it, um, I think, is, uh, is, is a helpful thing to understand about Christianity, especially when explaining the faith to someone as, uh, as different um, from what they might understand and from what all other religions are explaining about the world. Any questions about all of that or um, <clears throat> comments, etc.? Materiality that you're talking about, I think it's huge because 
every other religion says we try to escape it and actually sort of live in it. Um, <clears throat> hopefully, in a way, um, they glorifies God through the incarnation of the Holy Spirit in us. When was this interview? Is this uh, recent? October. Yeah, you can pull it up on oh, YouTube. It's really. So Russell Brand on Stephen on the Colbert yeah. Um, show. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this materiality is important. And actually, sometimes when I talk to people about it, they're like, this is the first time I've heard that really explained um, and the importance of it, especially because I think in terms of popular notions about, say, eternity, <clears throat> people imagine either in pop culture or even in Christian circles, if you ask people to explain heaven, for example, um, it's like we're going to be angels uh, and sort of floaty kind of beings without bodies playing harps, and I don't really care for harps, uh, you know, and so that actually, especially for like little boys, that's like a terrible picture when explaining the faith uh, to your sons, um, <clears throat> but uh, the biblical uh, understanding of eternity is one, of, is a material reality, I mean, read the end of Revelations, where there's a new heaven and a new earth, um, uh, meaning material, um, and Christ raising and ascending bodily, that uh, he still bears the wounds. Um, so there's, uh, even though it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, there's something different about his resurrection body, so much so that Mary didn't recognize him, and yet he, he says, go ahead, Thomas, put your um, finger in the wound. Uh, so he still bears the scars of the crucifixion. Um, and so uh, e eternity will be. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know more than that. That's all I know. But it will be a material reality, uh, and that is really hopeful to me. That I'm not just going to be some untethered, disembodied soul. That actually sounds terrible to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't think of a verse off the top of my head. Can somebody? Um, we will know if we are known is usually that verse. Okay. What's that from? Could be uh, one of the Corinthians. Okay. Right. Yeah. So perhaps, yeah. 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 You mentioned the uh, resurrection earlier. Can the resurrection be thought of as the inverse of the incarnation? In other words, there were plenty. There were three three examples of people who died and were brought back to life. Right. In the Testament. Yeah. But they eventually died. They brought back to life and then died again. They died again. Yeah. All right. But Jesus, the similarity <clears throat> of the resurrection is not so much that he was brought to life, but that his body was also taken into heaven and doesn't exist on earth anymore. Right. And is that uh, that's fascinating that in that he condescended in his incarnation from heaven on earth and materiality in his ascension he did the opposite is what you're saying that's a fascinating thought I mean I don't know what else to say about that but yeah yeah um, and he didn't lose he didn't uh, right in flesh <laughs> yeah right I mean, yeah yeah I appreciate the, uh, <clears throat> the my new word today historystory <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, I you know, historical. I well, I, I went good. to Yale, so. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. But it seems like to me that the antithesis of Christianity these days is science. 
you know, which, you know, I, I like to think that they're all paired together, but, yes. you know, it's, um, it's the, the virgin birth and, you know, uh, all the supernatural things that, that a lot of these, uh, agnostic people or whatever can't, can't deal with that, you know, <clears throat> when I'm talking, having that conversation that, you know, it usually gets down to maybe science versus, you know, the world's, you know, uh, not only 2,000 years old, etc. So. Yeah, that's a big sticking point. I think on both sides, we don't really usually know what we're talking about. Most people who say, you know, I don't believe in Christianity because I believe in science, mm -hmm. usually if you press them, they couldn't go much further than that. They actually don't really know what they're talking about. It's kind of a naive sort of general faith and scientific naturalism, which has been huge for not just uh, recently, but the past couple centuries. On the opposite end, Christians usually have a very naive response to that and don't have a very robust sort of... Um, and again, as Peter says, I didn't say this, but in that sort of that First Peter 3.15, he ends it by saying, give an account for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. And so we, we need to learn how to, to have a conversation with that person who's skeptical on scientific grounds gently and respectfully, but also with some perhaps sort of robust understanding that, say, scientists several generations ago were pretty exclusively Christian, and they were um, engaging in scientific thought to better understand, uh, or if they weren't Christian, they were at least deists, and they were, they were engaging in scientific thought to, to better understand God and his creation. Um, that this sort of response is kind of a, a more contemporary thing and that when we have, and also add to that, and then when we, we can do apologetics that is helpful uh, for the historically and scientifically minded person. Um, when we just say, uh, when we just lob Bible verses at them and say, well, this is what I believe, again, I think we're doing a, a disservice to Christianity. And if you don't know the answers yourself, I've given you a bibliography of a dozen or more different books that you can say, well, you might consider reading this. And one on there that I should have added is Miracles by C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis was the greatest apologist of the 20th century. Um, even his fiction was apologetic. <clears throat> That's why I read it to my kids. Um, and uh, he has a book called Miracles, which gets at the idea of the supernatural. Um, and uh, the trouble that people have with miracles is that we haven't seen any before. But that doesn't mean that they don't exist. There are a lot of things that I haven't experienced myself uh, that I take for granted. Um, so why not this one? Especially when there are people like John and Luke and the 500 people that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians uh, 15 who say, that which we have seen and heard. Um, I mean, 500 people's a lot. You're a lawyer, Ellis. I mean, wouldn't you love to have 500 witnesses in the courtroom? I mean, that's unheard of, right? He says, if you don't believe, like, good, they're still, most of them are still alive. <laughs> Go talk to them about the resurrection. And so these things are helpful for the scientifically and historically minded person. Hey. Hey, um, I used to live in Dallas, and when there, uh, back in the 80s, I knew the Reverend Ruth Tiffany Barnhouse, who you may have read, and she uh, was a psychiatrist for much science, 
and an ordained Episcopal priest and uh-huh. pastoral counselor at the Perkins Seminary at SMU. Okay. And she was one of the movement <clears throat> organization known as the Isthmus Institute, and this was connecting land masses. And the connection was between science and religion. Hmm. The theory being that neither can be full unless they know the other. And one of the lectures in the meeting was given by Sir John Eccles, who's an Australian Nobel Prize winner for uh, neuroscience and brain research. And you're not going to get much more scientific than that. He went through a very long uh, explanation going on newsprint on how the brain works and releases different chemicals and stimuli and all of that and how our minds work and he went up into this little bitty diagram in a box there and he said and that is where god is any questions (laughs) (laughs) but it was how he understood more fully the science of brain activity through his faith and it stayed with me, obviously, for a very long time. I don't think science, but I disagree a little bit, respectfully, don't think science is the antithesis of faith or Christianity. Yeah, I don't think that's what you were saying, right? Well, that's not what I'm, yeah. I agree, that's not what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is God letting us know more and more about creation. Yeah, I think some people set it up as an antithesis. As an excuse, yeah, yeah, right. One, one last comment. Yeah. I have seen miracles. I've seen them every day. And one of the strongest was seeing my daughter um, right after birth. Mm-hmm. That's not a miracle. I don't know what it is. Sure, I mean, there are plenty of things that uh, um, are miraculous in our life. There are a lot of people who would who don't have that thought or feeling. Um, and so, um, again, uh, you know, I mean, uh, the, the type of thing where God enters, he puts a ripple in the space-time continuum and enters as a, a fully uh, human and then comes back from uh, death into life. Most of us haven't seen that kind of thing. And so that's the thing that people really wrestle with, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Um, because again, it's not that it's a fairy tale, but it's a historical claim that can, you're not going to find a 100% watertight case for it. <clears throat> there will always be places where people can doubt it. And yet, it's still pretty good, especially compared to a lot of other things in, in this world that we take for granted. The last thing I want to say is the reason why I bring this in, um, just with a couple of minutes, some of you came to a class that I was teaching like six, seven months ago, a series on Christianity in the 21st century. And this is kind of a follow-up to that. And the reason why I'm teaching this is because I think that apologetics is something that the church needs to get acquainted with increasingly in the 21st century where Christianity is increasingly not taken for granted. And even here in the South, where we're seeing that with a lot of your adult children um, who were raised in the church, and yet they, you know, we send them off into college, and then th- they're confronted with a lot of these questions, especially if they take a religion class. That's like the worst place. <laughs> usually it's taught by, yeah, well, in religion 101 is usually taught by someone who's like not an Orthodox Christian. I'm just saying. Um, and so, they, and they, and that's an, a bright person with a PhD picking on an 18 year old girl. Unfair fight, right? And so, but that's done a lot of damage. 
um, to a lot of our youth. Uh, I've seen this in plenty of pastoral cases, and so teaching uh, this to ourselves as adults, but also getting our children acquainted with it, where they're no longer going to just take it for granted because it's in the air. Actually, something else is in the air. Secularism is the default mode, even in Alabama. Um, and a lot of people don't want to recognize that, but uh, it just it just is. I mean, you know, have you lived life? Um, and uh, and so I think apologetics is 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 really important uh, as we go further into the 21st century. And the final thing I'll say about that is we always want to bring it back to Jesus. Um, it's so easy to go off in a tailspin with the kind of scientific stuff. Um, Uh, the philosophical stuff about the nature of God without looking at scripture. But the reason why we always want to bring it back to Jesus is because ultimately we're concerned about evangelism and not winning a fight. And that's been a problem with apologetics sometimes is people use it as a debate tactic. I don't care to win debates. I care that people's hearts are converted and are entering the kingdom of God. And if this is a tool to use for the evangelism task, um, I want to give them more confidence in putting their, all their trust in Jesus Christ, um, uh, who uh, wasn't just a, a fairy tale, but someone that we point to existed in, in time and space and history. I'll probably, I'm going to do the uh, inquiries class for a few months, and then I might have some <clears throat> open air time in late spring, early summer to kind of follow this up, maybe around the resurrection, especially after Easter. Um, so look out for that. Let's pray real quick before we leave. Heavenly Father, these uh, things that we're talking about sometimes are um, way bigger than we can understand, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Inspire us and those who are still skeptical um, to come to know and love and trust you, especially uh, through your Son who who was born uh, in time and space as a, as a man and who, who did die and who did rise in the sun bodily, Lord. Um, uh, help us, for Christ's sake. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.